All right, if you got your Bibles, turn to the first chapter of John. We're going to begin there in verse 15. And as I said, we're going through this study of the Gospel of John. And today's passage is about he's full of grace and truth, but is actually going to encompass verses 15 through 18, though we'll just look at the first two verses today. Beginning in verse 15, it says, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And what we have here is we have the witness of John the Baptist. Now, what's unique about this is that the Gospel of John, unlike many of the other books of the Bible, the Gospel of John will actually tell you the purpose of the book. Most books of the Bible, <clears throat> especially when I do an exegesis of a book, I've got to go through the book and try to find out what is the central theme of the book. Because every part of the book is going to relate back to the central theme. And normally the central theme of the book doesn't come out until you're about halfway through it. But in the Gospel of John, he tells you exactly why the book was written. And so when he brings John the Baptist up as a witness, he's simply fulfilling what the book is about. So in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he tells us what the gospel of John is about. He says, and truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So the purpose of the Gospel of John is to present Jesus Christ as the Son of God so that we could have faith in his name and have eternal life. And so what he does in the Gospel of John, there's going to be seven witnesses that he brings forth to testify of who Christ is. And John here is just one of those witnesses. Now the word where it says John bore witness, the word witness there is the word marturio, and it comes from the word martis, and martis means to witness. But what does that mean? It means a person who has information or knowledge about something, not based on opinion, but based upon fact. It's a factual presentation of the truth. And so John is that witness. He is going to witness about Christ. What's also interesting is that word witness, as it's used here in this passage, is in the present tense. And what that simply means is present tense is ongoing. So what that means is John bore witness of him, and that witness is continuing to today. And what is that witness? That Christ is God. Because that's what he in essence is saying in that passage. That he is telling us that Christ is God. It says that he cried out. If you look there. It says, and John bore witness of him and cried out. He cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me for he was before me. The word cried there is the word krazo, and krazo means to shout, 
or to give out a loud shriek, a loud voice. It is used a lot throughout the New Testament, used in a lot of different places. It's used in reference to the disciples. It's even used in reference to the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, if you look in John chapter 7, when Jesus is at the feast, it says this. Turn in John 7 and 28. I'm sorry, John 7 and... Make sure I'm on the right passage. John 7 and 28 says this. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple saying, You both know me and you know where I'm from. And I've not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. And then you look down at verse 37 and you'll see it again. It says that on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, this is where the priest comes in and he's going to pour out a big pitcher of water onto the altar. And right when that priest is walking up there to do that, Jesus cries out and he says, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So when the Bible uses this phrase, cry out, it means to shout or to make a loud exclamation. Same word is used when the disciples were in the boat and they saw Jesus walking on the water. It says they cried out. They shouted. So it's a loud cry is what it is. The cry here of John the Baptist falls right in line with the prophecy that was given of him that he would be one in the wilderness that would cry out about the Messiah. So we see that John bore witness of him and he cried out. What did he cry out? Look at it. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me for he was before me. That's a statement to deity. Deity meaning that Jesus Christ is fully God. And how is that a statement of deity? Well, if you look at the passage, it says, he who comes after me is a reference to their birth. When John the Baptist was, was born, Jesus Christ was born six months after John the Baptist. If you remember the Christmas story when we were going over a couple of weeks ago, Mary went and talked to Elizabeth and it says Elizabeth was six months pregnant when Mary conceived the person of Christ. And when she talked to her, it says the babe leaped in her womb. So John the Baptist was born first and then Jesus Christ was born. But John makes a distinction. He says, even though I was born first, he who comes after me is preferred before me. What's that telling us? It's telling us that word preferred before me literally means ranks higher than me. What he's saying is every person that comes into the world has a time in which they come into this world. And we call that the birth or better yet, your conception. And, and you're, you're, that's when your time begins, okay? The distinction is that Jesus Christ had a conception but that wasn't the beginning of life for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is eternal God. He lived before that. And what the incarnation is, the incarnation is the eternal God being clothed with a body without sin to live among men. 
And he's going to go to the cross and he's going to die for the sin of mankind. So while everyone has a beginning point, Jesus Christ stands unique in that he doesn't have a beginning point. He has always been. Even the Gospel of John refers to this. Look at verse 1 of the Gospel of John. When it kicked off, you remember a couple months ago when we uh, were looking at this. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Well, who is the word that he's talking about here? Well, verse 14 tells us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is Jesus Christ. But he says very clearly here that he was also the creator. Verse four says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. So he is the creator God that brought the whole creation into existence. That's what John is referencing when he says, even though I came before him, he is actually ranks above me because he's eternal. So he's given a witness to the eternal nature of the person of Jesus Christ. He's testifying to the fact that Jesus Christ is preexistent. And while at the same time he's preexistent, he's also eternal. He has always existed. Why is that important? Why do you think these writers over and over just in this First chapter of John, they keep presenting the truth. Jesus Christ is eternal. Jesus Christ is fully God over and over and over. It's because almost every major cult is going to differ on the deity of Jesus Christ. That is a significant point and fact about cults and primary two primary cults we deal with in our age and time. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. And they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They will tell you he is not God. He is just one of many great teachers. When John wrote this, he wasn't worried about Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. He was dealing with Gnostics, just another variation that, that presented a false God. But one of the distinct things about Christianity is that Jesus Christ is God. And Jesus himself is going to testify to the fact that he is eternal in his nature in this gospel. So look at John chapter eight. If you look in John chapter eight, he's talking to the Jews here and we're going to begin in verse 52. He's interacting with the religious leaders of his day. And this conversation comes up. It says, then the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets are dead? Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it 
and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now that phrase, I am, is the name of God. It is the same statement that God made to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3.14. Moses said, what is your name? Who are you? And God says, I am. I am that I am. And that is the name of God. They use a tetragrammation and they come up with the name Yahweh from that statement that is made there. But what Jesus is saying is, I existed before Abraham did. And Abraham saw me and I knew him. So he's telling them he's eternal. Verse 59, they understood that. It says, then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them and so passed by. They understood full well what he was saying. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, flip over there. John 17 and look at verse 5. When Jesus is praying, he's going to ask the Father to bring, to glorify him together with the Father. But he says something very unique in that fifth verse. He says, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In other words, I was with you, Father, before the world even existed. We were in a perfect triune Godhead, and I existed with you. Restore that glory to me. Glorify me with you at that time. So you see, Jesus is referencing the fact that he predates the existence of the world in that comment. The previous comment, John 8, 58, he predates Abraham. And so what he's doing is he's giving testimony to the fact that he is eternal, that he is very God, is who he is. So our passage, back to our passage in 15, where it says, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, for he was before me. He's eternal God. He simply brought on a human body. He took on a human body and he's living here in our midst today. When Jesus came down the river Jordan that day after his baptism, John turned and pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And what he was proclaiming was, this is the one that fulfills every prophetic reference to the coming of Messiah. This is the one I've been telling you about. This is the one that doesn't cover sin. This is the one that takes sin away. This is the fulfillment of every type in the Old Testament. This is the fulfillment of everything that we've looked forward to. This is the one that God has sent for us. And that's what John is witnessing to. But what has he sent? Well, verse 16 tells us. It says, and of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. Interesting point if, you're, if you take notes. That first word there in verse 16, in my Bible is translated and. In some translations, it's going to be translated for. And the correct translation is for. And what that simply means, it's a supporting statement to reinforce something that was previously stated. So what is it reinforcing? It's reinforcing verse 14. 
So let's look at it this way. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16. For His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. It's a supporting argument about the Word of God and how we beheld His glory. And so the, the, the first word there plays back to it. He says, for his fullness. Now, what is that word fullness? The word fullness there is the word pleramo. And pleramo means fullness, or it's translated fullness, but it means to make full, complete, or equal to the full measure. What he's saying is that Jesus Christ is not part God, He's not an example to show us how to get to God. He's just, he's not another great prophet that talks about God. He is fully God. He is all God. It's another deity passage. And John chapter one is just loaded in that kind of stuff. As you go through the gospel of John, you'll see it. But John chapter one, it's bam, 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 bam. It's all over the place stating that Jesus is the eternal God. Hold your place here and go to Colossians chapter one and look with me there. We'll get an epistle and this epistle will give us a supporting argument to it also because it's always good to have scripture support scripture. Now look at Colossians chapter one and look at verse 19. Colossians one and 19. Colossians 1:19 says, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. It says in him, talking about in the person of Christ, all the fullness of God dwells in him. From there, go to Colossians chapter 2. Now look at verse 8, Colossians 2, 8. The actual verse is verse 9, but we're going to look at 8 as a backdrop. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, meaning that in His body, Christ is fully God undiminished deity. He is fully God in a human body. And then look what else it says. Verse 10, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So it works like this. All the fullness of God is in the person of Christ. And when you and I come to faith in Christ, we're placed in Christ. So we're in the fullness of God. We have all of God. That being in Christ, in Christ, you'll see that all through the Bible, in Him, in Christ, it speaks of our position. Our position is our eternity. Our position relates to our justification. We have been declared righteous by God and we've been placed in Christ. That is our position seated in the heavenlies. It's permanent position. It doesn't budge, it doesn't move. Then down here on earth, we have our condition. Our condition is, I may be living for Christ or I may not be living for Christ. 
if I'm living for Christ, I'm living in obedience to the word of God. I've submitted myself to the word of God. I'm walking in line with what God says. If I'm outside of that, I'm living in the flesh and I'm committing sin. So our condition changes. Sometimes we're living for God. Sometimes we're not. We confess our sin. We move back into this relationship talking about our fellowship. It comes, it goes. But our position, folks, is eternal. Our condition is temporal. It comes and goes built upon our obedience. And so when this passage says, and you are complete in him, it means that you have everything that you need forever in the person of Christ. You are fully equipped by God. You're fully complete by God. You're complete in him. You have all that is necessary to live for him. So the question is this, Jesus possesses you, but do you possess Jesus? Yes, you do. You possess him. You possess him because of your position. All right. And then the second question is, does he possess you? Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't at times. But in eternity, he possesses me all the way. He keeps me secure. He holds me secure. My salvation is not built upon my faithfulness. It's built upon the faithfulness of God because he is faithful to keep his word. So he is faithful to us. So let's go back to our passage in John chapter one. See if we can understand it a little better. He says, and of his fullness, we have all received, meaning we possess it. Now, how do we know that? Well, look at verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. When you believe on the person of Jesus Christ, you have received Christ and you are placed in Christ. That is your position. But you possess him. He is a part of your life. But there's something else. That's your eternal relationship. That is a permanent relationship. But what's the last part of that verse? It says, and of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. Now, that word therefore is the Greek word. It's, called, it's spelled anti, A-N-T-I. And what it means is that one replaces the other. In other words, where it says you have grace and it's replaced with more grace, okay? It can be translated either way uh, in, in the scriptures. It can be translated upon or it can be translated for. My Bible, it's translated for. It says, and of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. Or it could be translated and his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Well, first of all, let's deal with grace. What is grace? All right. Grace is the unmerited favor or benefit of God. Grace is when we receive something from God and it's by no merit of ourself. You've probably heard it described as the unmerited favor of God. And what does unmerited mean? It means that you do nothing to receive grace from God. Grace is freely given by God to us. When I was given forgiveness through the person of Jesus Christ, 
I did nothing to merit that forgiveness, nor can I do anything to merit that forgiveness. But there's hardly anything in life that you can get that you don't have to pay for or do something to merit. All right. Many of you may have been raised in families where you had to earn your parents love or you had to do something for your parents to love you. A true relationship is children are loved by their parents, whether they are obedient or disobedient. Children are loved based on their position. God loves us not based upon our performance, but he loves us based upon his grace, his unmerited favor towards us. Now, what that tells us is something else, that every day that I receive grace, I'm always going to receive more grace and more grace. God's grace is so abundant in our life. Now, that really troubles some people because if you tell them that, that, that I cannot out the grace of God, that really, that's, that disturbs the water uh, quite a bit. Because people say, well, if you say something like that, then people will go out and just sin and live their life independent of God. People, by and large, will do that if they make their mind up to do it. It doesn't matter what you tell them. Doesn't matter what you say. I mean, you know this, the Bible's pretty clear that if, if, you, if you die without Jesus Christ, you're going to go to hell, and yet people will still live and reject Jesus Christ, right? It doesn't, you can put every stopgap measure in the world in there, and people are still going to do it. Why? Because we need the grace of God. We don't inhibit ourselves from sin. We sin. We sin, even though we know what the righteous requirements of the word says. Correct? Correct. We still sin. We know it's not the right thing to do, but we still do it. And so he says, we receive grace upon grace or grace and more grace. Let's look at another passage of scripture. Go to Romans chapter five. Romans chapter five says basically the same thing. Romans five and 20. I'm going to begin in verse 19. So put 19 on the screen. I'm sorry about that. It says, for by one man's disobedience, many were made sinner. Who is that one man? Adam. By Adam's sin, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. What's that mean? God gives us a righteous standard of what he requires to show us that we're sinful. Law or prohibition in a sinful person provokes sin from that person. I mean, how many times when you see a prohibition, do you go ahead and do it? I got a friend that's a professional painter. And he says, whenever I paint in a building, he said, I put a sign up. It says, do not wet paint, do not touch. And he said, invariably, every time I come back, people are going to put a fingerprint on it. Or he said, somebody has touched it. And it says in plain print, don't touch, it's wet paint. But that prohibition excites it. So what he said he does is he says, I put the P backwards and he says, I misspelled touch. He said, I put, instead of T-O-U-C-H, he said, I write it T-U-O-C-H. He said, the brain can pick up on it. But when the people walk up, he said, they point at the signs. Look at that idiot, he doesn't even know how to spell. But he said it keeps their hands off of the paint. And he said, ever since I did that, he said, it's been the greatest thing in the world for me. And 
So he said, he said, I take that criticism and because and he said, I'll even have people come and find me. And they'll say, hey, you misspelled your sign over there. And he said, I'll act like I didn't know it. So boy, I'm glad you pointed that out to me. I'll be careful next time. But he said he does it every time. And he said it keeps people from touching it. Because see, the law makes us want to do something that makes us want to violate it. So when this scripture says the law entered that the offense might abound, what this, what this means is that when God gave his law, it just fully revealed the sin of man. And man's sin exploded. But look what else it says. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. No matter how much man's sin abounded, God's grace abounded more. God's grace is always greater than man's sin. There is a song, grace greater than our sin. And it means that God's grace overwhelms our sin and stays ahead of us. Because see, when we, when we think about sin, most of the time we think about what we've done. I, this, just this past week, I, I went to uh, the death row, female death row here in Texas and shared with those girls. I'd gone back there back at the end of November, first part of December, and I stopped by there and they asked me a question. So I got a notepad and there's seven of them in there. And I, and I was showing them an illustration on a notepad to relate to a biblical truth because they asked me, how do you have a clear conscience? And I said, oh, I can show you that. Or can you have a clear conscience? I said, yes, you can. And I was scribbled it out, went through a real brief, about an hour and a half explanation. <laughs> no, I, that was brief. And they were like, whoa, that is amazing because they'd never heard that before. And so when I went back, for a Christmas presentation, I went back to do a Christmas present, took a singer and some women from the church and we had them take stockings to the women on death row and then general population and stuff to give them something for the holidays. We went in death row and they said, we want the rest of that. We want you to teach us the rest of that. We've been studying what you gave us and it is, it is freeing us up. And I said, okay. I said, it's about six to eight hours. They said, I don't care if it takes all day. I want to know. So I went back this week and I went there for six hours with them and charted it out and explained it to them and got feedback from them. And it liberated and set them free. And they, were, they would stand up and testify that, oh, what I did and my crime, it just, it grieves me. Some the remorse that they had and the grief that they had for their sin and what it got them on death row was amazing to see. But I stopped them. I said, stop and think about this. I said, as, as bad as what you did is, you realize that your thoughts are far worse than that? I said, your thoughts have done way more than what your actions could ever do because your thoughts preceded those actions. And I said, and chances are in your thoughts, you did it many times before you did the act. And so see, that's why we need the grace of God, folks, because we are sinners. And as a result of being sinners, we can think evil thoughts or unloving thoughts, and then we just go on with life and forget about it. But that is a sin against God, and so God's grace is always there to cover and to stay ahead of us to where our sin doesn't undo us because the grace of God is what saves us. We're not saved because we're obedient. We're not saved because we keep every point 
and jot and tittle of the word of God. We're saved because the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient for our sin and God's grace is sufficient. And it is God's grace and God's forgiveness that gets us into this presence, not what we do. That's why when we get to heaven, we won't be, we won't march up in front of Jesus and say, well, Jesus, I lived a good life, man. I followed you and we're not one of us going to say that. We're going to, every one of us bow and praise his name and say, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness because it's the grace of God that carries us through. You look at this passage. We have all the fullness of God in our position with him and grace for grace. So what does that relate to? It relates to our daily life. We have everything necessary positionally before God. And we have everything necessary for day-to-day -day living before God. Because our position before him gives us his fullness. And it is grace for grace in the daily life. Meaning that God's grace goes before us and God's grace keeps us. And God's grace preserves us as we move forward in life. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Is that God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. He died in our place. We did nothing to merit his favor. We did nothing to merit his grace, but his grace is poured out upon us. And it is God's grace that keeps us. It is God's grace that preserves us. It is God's grace that protects us. And so we see that in a person of Christ, we have grace upon grace upon grace. And that's why, that's one of the reasons we worship him because he is a God of grace. And he has far more grace than we as humans even understand. Because we like to think of ourselves, especially once we get saved, that we're somehow better. But we're just in much of the need of grace of God now as we were the day we were saved. It's no different. We need it more and more. And the further you grow with God and the more you grow with God, the more you're going to recognize your need of his grace in your life. And be thankful that he is a God of grace, that we have his grace upon grace. We have new grace every time over and over. It's a continual outpouring of grace that comes through the person of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. We have that. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord, that we have the fullness of God in the person of Christ. And we have your grace upon grace. No matter what we face in life, your grace is sufficient for our sin. We are truly thankful and grateful to you, Father. My prayer, if there's one here today has never trusted you, that they would today and they would embrace that fullness. And they would embrace the person of Christ and trust in him and receive his grace in our life, God. We're so very thankful for all that you've done for us. And we pray for this, Father that we'd be people of faith that would live by faith and follow you in all of our life, but yet realizing that your grace is what sustains us and it's what keeps us. And Father, you alone are worthy of our worship. In Christ's name we pray, amen.